0: Have you ever dedicated yourself to spending time to work on something only to find yourself then distracted, maybe multitasking, multitasking, doing something that's not as important? I mean, I think we all do that. Just this morning, self-disclosure, sharing feelings, I'm working on the sermon, I'm up early, I'm doing my thing, I'm cruising, I'm like, this is good, I feel good about this. I wonder what's happening in the news. Boop, you go over to the news, what am I doing? why why did I do that? It's not the most important thing right now. I should be focusing on the task at hand, which is work, working on the sermon. I didn't finish. I kept reading the news, so I really don't know how this is going to work out. So (laughs) the internet, just kidding. The internet is a great time waster. We check our social media on our phones. Maybe we're working around the house, we get pulled off into every, I know some of you are these people, right? You do like one thing in one room, but then you get distracted in another room, and then you got like 15 rooms of the house torn apart. Yeah, it happens to everybody. We're trying to study. We wonder if any friends gave any updates to their Instagram storylines, so we take out our phone and just check just to make sure, off we go. There goes 15, 20 minutes, distracted, wasting time on things that are not the main priority at the moment. Jesus was on the earth for about 30 years, and his ministry lasted only about three years. How do you think Jesus did with his time management, with his priority management? How do you think Jesus did with focusing on the main thing, with the mission at hand? There was no one better. Jesus, of course, did the work perfectly. He perfectly managed his priorities in order to stay focused with laser-like intensity on the work that was there to do, his mission, his redemptive mission in the gospel. He knew the cross awaited him, and every day it got closer, and he focused on that mission as a priority. He also had to keep teaching and reminding his disciples, who probably were not as good right, at focusing on the mission, especially when they heard things that upset them, Especially when they were distracted maybe by the blessings of following Jesus. Especially when they were wondering what is going to happen in the future. Matthew is going to tell us all about that this morning. And so as Bob read for us in Matthew 17 last week, we took a look at a dramatic encounter between Jesus, his disciples, a crowd, a desperate father, and a sick boy And hopefully you saw last week that comparison that Matthew was trying to draw between the misplaced faith of the disciples and the weak yet powerful faith of the desperate father to heal his son. And we said that the object of our faith is more important than the level of our faith. Of course, the object of our faith must be Jesus Christ. This week, Jesus continues his ministry His journey, he ends up back in his hometown in Galilee, and specifically Capernaum. And for the second official time, Jesus predicts his own death. Let's look back at Matthew 17 and verse 22. It says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. If you're confused about what happened in verse 21, see last week. Because that's, that's all about last week. So verse 22, though, Matthew tells us they're heading up into Galilee. Okay, so let's get our map going. I know you people saw Galilee. You're excited about a map. So we've got Galilee over here. And in the middle of Galilee is Capernaum. Okay, right there. I'm not going to show you another map when it mentions Capernaum. Okay, so you're just going to have to remember where Capernaum is. It's, this was Caesarea Philippi. He was there a little while ago. So he's been traveling all around. And now he's back in his hometown of Galilee, not sure where the Transfiguration happened. We talked about it, but last week it seemed they were certainly back in Jewish territory, as there were scribes and Pharisees back in the mix that Mark told us. Jesus says, as they're heading into Galilee, he says, "The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. The Son of Man, his favorite self-designation, that messianic term from Daniel." Jesus claiming again to be the Messiah, God in the flesh. He said that I am going to be handed over. I'm going to be delivered over. Maybe even better, betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill me, but I will rise on the third day. This is actually the second time he mentions both his death and his resurrection. But it's the third time itself he mentions his resurrection. Remember back in uh, 17.9. And Jesus told the disciples, yeah, don't say anything until I've risen from the dead. And like, cool. What? Don't understand it. They're struggling with all this. They're trying to figure it all out. One more time, he mentions the plan to them. His earthly mission ends with the cross. Of course, in the tomb when he was resurrected for that. But he knows where it's going to end. Remember, the cross was not a reaction. Sometimes we can think, well, Jesus just messed up and got himself killed or evil prevailed that day or it was a big mistake it got it, it spiraled out of control and Jesus ended up on the cross that is not the case. The cross is not a reaction the cross is the plan of God for redemption. It is the means of our salvation church and it is the plan that God had orchestrated. You can't have orthodox biblical Christianity without the cross, without the resurrection. You just can't. It is the means of our salvation. So that's how we think about the cross and the resurrection because, of course, we're on the other side of that and we see what he did and we understand that and that's the means of our salvation. But how do you think the disciples thought about that? Again, he's, he's, why are we talking about this again? Why are you saying this again? Verse 23, what does it say in the last part? Yeah, 23. They were greatly distressed or deeply grieved. You can't blame them. Jesus is their friend. Your friend's It's not good when your friends start talking about how they're going to die. That's not a happy day. And of course, then they don't understand what he's talking about being raised from the dead. Like, people don't get undead. Like, what are you talking about? We don't like any of this. What is this resurrection business? Mark, in his version, in in Mark chapter 9, there's a little bit more detail. Mark 9, 9, as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to tell, or to tell them no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is back in the transfiguration. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what is this rising from the dead might mean. On the one hand, you're kind of like, it means he's going to rise from the dead. But on the other hand, you can't blame them for talking about it because people don't do that. It's like kind of simple to understand, but then kind of, we don't get it. It still doesn't make sense. People don't do it. They're struggling with this. So the disciples are distressed. They're grieved. They don't like this kind of talk when Jesus keeps doing this. Not to mention, they're kind of on this little movement here. They kind of got something going. They kind of feel good about this. Maybe they're like, yeah, maybe we can finally kick Rome out. Maybe we can finally get our country back. Maybe we can finally, you know, take over the world. If he's dead, that's not going to happen. So let's stop talking about that. They are pre-grieving, I guess, the loss of their friends. They're totally confused about the resurrection. Following Jesus is hard, especially when he starts talking like that, especially when he starts saying like he did before, be ready to take up your deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But even in these events, the plan is upsetting once again. You have to know this is not their plan. Their plan for whatever is happening does not include Jesus dying. And so they don't like it when this happens. That's the point. Following Jesus means embracing his plan. Following Jesus means embracing his plan. In the immediate context, of course, the disciples, they're having none of this talk. But why is he saying it? Because it's going to happen. It's a reality. That's what what his plan is. He's telling them that so that they can get on board with the plan. This is how it's going to happen, guys. I know you don't like it, but a disciple needs to embrace my plan. I know it's not your plan, but you need to embrace my plan. I have a very close friend who can immediately tell when I'm not on board with the plan, whether it's my facial expression, my lack of enthusiasm, and the tone of my voice, and he'll look at me, and I know I'm busted, and he'll say this thing that I hate, and he goes, I need you to emotionally commit to this. I'm like, I don't want to, because this is a terrible plan. I don't want to emotionally commit to this. I have other ideas. Jesus is calling his disciples to emotionally commit to this plan. I know it's not what you want, but that's the way it's going to go. Not sure about you guys, but the longer I follow Jesus, the more I understand what that actually means. Like every year that goes by, sometimes every day, I understand more deeply what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, Oh, that's what you mean. Like, my whole life? Like, every single part of my life? There's nothing that is not under your authority? Every reaction, every thought, every decision, everything? Yeah, that's that's hard. (laughs) It's hard when we think about it that way. Jesus is calling us to embrace his plan, his lordship over every aspect of our lives. Our marriage, our sexuality, our singleness, our parenting of little kiddos or adult kidults, our schools or our careers or our retirement, our homeschooling or our homemaking, our finances or our lack thereof. The list goes on and on. Every aspect of our lives, we're called to embrace His plan, not our plan. Think about this. Are there any areas in my life where I am not embracing the plan of Jesus? And first and foremost, the plan to be transformed into His image from one degree to the next. Where is that not happening in my life? Let's also resist the temptation to over spiritualize this, right? Because sometimes we can think, oh, the plan of God, that sounds awesome. What does it mean for me? Maybe I'll, you know, go on Instagram and be a big influencer for Jesus and have a gazillion followers or something. Or I'll start a new ministry or platform or some new calling, something exciting. Well, first and foremost, it means killing sin. It means growing into the image of Jesus Christ. It means letting him transform you from the inside out. It means submitting to him as not only Savior, but Lord in every aspect of our lives. That's what it means to embrace his plan. Our Tuesday mornings and our Saturday nights and everything in between. Following Jesus means embracing his plan. Following Jesus means keeping his plan, the priority, over and above our own preferences, our own ideas, even our own rights and our own privileges sometimes. That's what's going to happen in the next section. Look at verse 24. So they come to Capernaum. The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and says, does your teacher not pay the tax? And so just pause for a minute there. As they enter Capernaum, they're immediately pounced on, as it seems by one of the local tax collectors, tax collectors asking about the two drachma tax. Great, just what you want. You roll into town. Suddenly the IRS is immediately on your case. This tax is probably not a government tax. This comes from actually the law of God. In Exodus, starting uh, with the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 30. And I'll read a little bit of where that came from. In the law, starting in verse 13 of Exodus 30, Moses says this, Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. <clears throat> the shekel is 20 gerahs. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upwards shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less. Hold your political commentary. Then the half shekel, when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money for the people of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of the meeting, right, the tabernacle, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives." So this tax, in all likelihood, is that. It is, the, it is the tax that supports the work, initially, of the tabernacle, but now we're in the temple age. And now it's been transferred over to support the work of the temple. The furnishings, the fixtures, all of that, and the work of the temple. In Jesus' day, there's different currency in circulation. Now it's called the drachma, which is equivalent to half a shekel. It was sort of like the Nehemiah Fund, but it was continual, and it functioned as not only a census, as we see in Exodus, but as a means to continue the work of the ministry in the temple. So think about that. I don't know if any of you put the the pieces together already in Exodus, right? The tax was literally funding the ongoing work of the temple, funding the ongoing work of the sacrifices, the sacrifices that were the means of atonement. The sacrifices of the old covenant of which Jesus is here to do away with. Of which Jesus is here to fulfill. Right? So think about that. This guy is asking the disciples and and Jesus, is he going to pay for the very system that he is here to do away with? It's... It, it's what do, you think, what do you think he would say to that? What do you think he would, he would think when he realizes, well, that's what this is, and that's not what we're here to do? Maybe even Peter, if he had a, a fully-orbed view of redemptive history, right? If he, if he got it, which I love Peter, but I don't think he got it because I think he would not have said that right away. If Peter got it, he would have been like, no way. We're actually here to get you fired. We're actually here to do away with the temple. So no, I don't think he's going to be paying any tax there, Mr. Guy. But that's what we'll see. He doesn't. He just simply says yes. We'll see that in a moment. Peter simply says yes. He pays it. Not really sure how he knew that he paid it, whether they talked about it before or whether Jesus paid it last year and they knew it. I don't know. Peter goes into the house and things get even more weird. Look back at verse 25 in the text. He says yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Peter again simply responds, Yes, he pays it. Cool story. Walks inside. That's it. End of conversation. He runs into Jesus, not exactly sure how Jesus knew what the conversation was. Maybe he overheard through the window. Maybe Jesus, just being Jesus, knew that's what they were talking about. He asks Peter, what do you think, Simon? Do do the sons of the earth, or the kings of the earth, rather, charge their sons tax? Peter says, Uh, no, the family of the king is tax-exempt. Everybody else has to pay the tax, but not the royal family. They don't have to pay the tax. And Jesus confirms that understanding. He says, yeah, the sons are free. They don't have to pay the tax. Why? Because they're sons of the king. The sons of the king don't have to pay the tax. Why? Why why is Jesus saying this? And again, not sure if if Peter understood this. It seems pretty clear what he's referring to here. Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax. And Peter, you don't have to pay the tax either and neither do any of the other disciples. Why? Because I'm the king, and because you're my disciples. That's what he's inferring here. And the sons of the king don't have to pay the tax, right? Especially one that funds the very means of atonement that I'm here to do away with. And so we see the disciples of Jesus share in that blessing. He's saying, no, you're, you're, my, you're my sons, you're my disciples. You're, you're exempt, you are free from paying the tax. And so I'll say it this way Following Jesus means sharing in the blessings of the King. Following Jesus means sharing in the blessings of the King. And let's face it, church, there are blessings for following Jesus. Sometimes we don't talk about the blessings so much because we're afraid we might be a little prosperity gospel ish, but, but there, are ble- there are blessings for following Jesus. And I'm primarily meaning spiritually. There are spiritual blessings in following Jesus. If you ever want a helpful place in Scripture to remind yourself of the spiritual blessings of following Jesus, get yourself to Ephesians chapter 1 and soak yourself in Ephesians chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, watch this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of his time to unite all things in him, all things on heaven and on earth. In him we obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, should really underline that circle that highlight that in your bible he works all things don't cross it out and write some things he works all things according to the purpose and counsel of his will so that we who were first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also he's not done yet when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How does that change your Monday? You need to remember the spiritual blessings of following Christ. Soak in these words, church. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You are holy and blameless You are predestined for adoption into his family. You've been blessed with his grace that, oh, by the way, he lavished on you. Not sparingly. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. We have wisdom and insight It's made known to us by his will, according to the purpose where he unites all things under his will. We have an inheritance that is according to him who works again, all things according to his will. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're guaranteed of a future inheritance. Our future eternity is secure. These are the things we need to be reminding ourselves. Tax to pay for the temple, for the bulls and the goats, to temporarily take away sin. No, that's all going away in Jesus. And and we, as Gentiles, can now be grafted into these beautiful spiritual blessings in Christ. And so if we're not walking in these spiritual blessings, what is stopping us? Sometimes we lose sight of them. We need to rehearse them. We need to remember the mighty works of God in Christ Jesus and what that means for us. Sometimes they're not secured or memorized in our hearts. We need to memorize them. We need to meditate on them. Sometimes we think they're... they're outside, like all those things that will make me happy are outside of Christ. No, he's given us all those things as part of our identity, as who we are in Jesus Christ. Surround yourself with them. Remind yourself that there is nothing that can take them away. Why? Because the supremacy of God is found in Jesus Christ, and the mission of God is the most important thing. And if we are secure in the spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ... Sometimes then, we've got to realize that there are other things in life, there are other pursuits, there are other priorities that we just got to let go because it's not important. It's not as important as the main mission. It's not as important as what these spiritual blessings then mean for us, will do for us. We've got to look some of these things in the face sometime and say, not important. I'm not going to go to war on that. I'm not going to worry about that. And that's exactly where Jesus ends up. Look at verse 27. He says, however, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, we don't have to pay this tax. You know we don't have to pay this tax. We don't have to pay it. That's part of why I'm here. But there's something way more important going on here than paying this tax and we don't want to get hung up on this fight and so so not to offend them not to create a scandal watch this not to create a stumbling block we're just going to pay the tax we're just going to pay it and how he pays it is so cool i mean come on he could have just gone i got it but he didn't right it's not they probably had like a pile of coins around. them probably, this was just probably one more thing. It's like, oh great, we got the tax collector at the door. It's not like they're in the gospel ministry for the money. So they, there's just one more thing that they had to worry about. Where are they going to get the money? But, but then Jesus, no, he has to do it miraculously here. He tells Peter to grab his rod and his reel. Tells him to head to the Sea of Galilee, hook up a buzz bait or a senko worm or whatever you think. Ca- Some of you are fishermen, will get that. you will cast that out and he says, the first fish that you catch, open it up, and it's going to have a coin in it. It's probably not a shekel. The word isn't a shekel. I'm not sure why ESV went with a shekel. It just means a silver coin, and it's going to pay for both of us. Take that fishy-smelling coin, give it to the tax collector, right? Yeah, did to know that was part of it. Here's your, here's your little, you know, it smells like a fish. Long story. Cool story, but here you go. That's for me and Jesus. Look at the sovereign control of Jesus over his creation. This, of course, you know that I spent some time looking at this, isn't actually out of the ordinary. The fish is probably one of those kind of bottom feeder fishes, right? And that's their job. They they go around the bottom, they scoop up stuff. It's not uncommon that you find weird things in a fish's mouth, right? Maybe even not uncommon that you'd find a coin. But Jesus isn't relying on random chance here. This is Jesus. This is a miracle, And so he he had that fish, whether he had it scoop up this coin or whether Jesus miraculously miraculously placed it in his mouth. And Peter goes fishing at the exact same moment and catches the exact fish that Jesus wants him to. And Peter somehow doesn't lose the fish and the fish comes. And he gets the first fish. Why can't that happen to me when I go fishing? That's what I want to know. We don't know if this actually happened. Matthew doesn't tell us that, yes, Peter went out and did all of those things. It doesn't appear in any of the other Gospels. This is just the the one and only shot we have here. But I would speculate that Peter did. I mean, how could you not? You just go just to see if it worked. All right, cool. Let's see, uh, see if this actually works. And Jesus says that the mission is more important than this tax. And he miraculously provides the means in order to keep the mission the main priority. I'll put it this way. Following Jesus means relying on Jesus to provide. Following Jesus means relying on Jesus to provide. Again, you have to realize these guys are not following Jesus for the money. They're all probably broke at this point. It's not like they had a pile of coins laying around. Again, it's just like, oh, give them them the the tax collector one of those coins. No, they probably didn't have any. God provides. Remember all the spiritual blessings we just rehearsed. God provides for his disciples all they need, but watch this, for what? For his mission, right? So, sometimes we, get, we think about God providing, and we just sang it, in great is thy faithfulness, amazing old hymn of the faith. But remember, God provides what, he, what we need for his mission. Sometimes we mix that up, and we think, well, I need this, God. When are you going to provide this for me? And he's up there going, and you don't need it because I didn't give it to you. We've got to remember, he provides what we need for his mission, not our ideas, not our wants. Famous missionary to China, Hudson Taylor, said, depend on it. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. And that's what we hope to do and hope to be faithful here at Highlands. We hope to do God's work, God's way, and we know that God will provide, and he has and we, we have generous, generous people here. Many of us, were we to go around, be able to tell dramatic ways in which God has provided for us. I think that's part of why Jesus provided this coin in such a miraculous, dramatic way. Just to remind us all that I'm in control. I could, I could get what you need out of the mouth of a fish. That's how powerful I am. But notice a, first, a few things about this with me. First, Peter had to go get it. He didn't, had to go out and he had to go fish. Sometimes we can think that God supplying all of our needs, right, just means we sit around and wait for God to give us whatever we need. That we don't have to work. We don't have to hustle. We don't have to go things make, make things happen with all the energy and all the strength that he's the one that provides us to go get all of those things, right? Waiting on the Lord to provide doesn't mean waiting around and doing nothing. When we wait on the Lord, it is an active waiting on the Lord. Someone once said that we pray like it all depends on God and we work like it all depends on us. We know that he's the one that's going to ultimately supply it, but we're not just going to sit around and wait for it to happen. But second, what Philippians tells us is, is also, and Philippians has told us time and time again, my God shall supply all of your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Right? Many of us have that verse memorized. Right? What Philippians tells us, Is also what's happening in context in Matthew that God supplies his needs. How? According to the riches of Christ Jesus. That's how he supplies. God supplying our needs is not about self-glorification. It's about the glory of God. How? In Jesus Christ. It's about the mission of what? The mission of Jesus Christ. It's about the gospel. It's about the supremacy of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God supplying our needs is going to be to glorify himself through Jesus Christ. It's going to always come back to his son. It's going to always come back to the mission of Jesus. Jesus says that they will pay the tax. And he provides for that in a very miraculous way. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of his mission. And so maybe I can summarize the big idea this way this morning. Following Jesus means keeping the mission primary. Following following Jesus means keeping the mission primary. The mission, the gospel, must be primary at all times. That's why Jesus says, we're not going to get hung up on paying this tax. This tax isn't going to exist in a couple of years anyway. We're just going to pay it. Why? So we can keep the mission primary. All in, all the time. We follow Jesus no matter what. That's what a disciple does. And so why do we get distracted by lesser important things? Following Jesus means embracing his plan, even when we don't like it, even when, we make, even when it gets us upset or when it's hard. Following Jesus means sharing the blessings of the king. We do that. We follow Jesus. Why? Because it's worth it. We've got to remind ourselves that. Why do we do this? Why do we say no to sin? Why do we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him? Why do we do the hard work of growing as a Christian? Because it's worth it. Because we want those spiritual blessings. But following Jesus means relying on him to provide what we need for the mission. And sometimes that means letting lesser things go by the wayside. Sometimes that means knowing what battles you really need to fight. What things you really need to be involved in. Do I really need to be this involved in politics? Do I really need to have this opinion on a social issue? Are they primary to the mission? Not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics. Not saying we shouldn't have well thought out biblical positions on social issues. But we can't let that get in a higher position than the gospel. What rights do we need to lay down for the gospel? The disciples could have gone to war about this temple tax. And you know Peter. He was probably ready. Like, once he figured it out, let's go. We're not paying this tax. We'll burn this place to the ground before I pay this little drachma tax. Jesus, mm -mm, we're just going to pay it. We're just going to pay it. You need to cool down and go fishing, right? (laughs) Totally reading into the text there, but I think it was probable. The disciples could have gone to war over this temple tax, but Jesus wouldn't let that happen. Why? Because it's a non-issue compared to the mission of the gospel. What battles might we be fighting that we don't need to be involved in? What things in our lives need to be given a priority demotion to keep the mission of the gospel primary? Sometimes we do need to stand and fight. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we need to remember that the gospel mission is primary. One commentator puts it this way. The principle at stake is one which we can and should be more widely applied While there are times when a disciple must make an unpopular stand and so alienate others, many of the issues and practices on which we might legitimately differ from conventional assumptions are not worth fighting over. Watch this. A Christian community that sets up stumbling blocks only when it is really necessary is likely to be more effective in mission. We want to make big deals out of the things that the the Bible makes big deals about. And the biggest deal in the Bible is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, church, we will die on that hill if we have to. But there are going to be other things that we're going to let go. Now, we've got to remember there are some other issues that have a direct beeline to the gospel, whether it's our identity in Christ and being threatened by CRT or intersectionality or something like that, whether it's the idea of racial harmony being put more important than the gospel itself, whatever issue it might be. We've got to remember that there are some things that come in that are like rivaling for position And we can't let that happen either. But we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any stumbling blocks we put up had better be primary to the mission of bringing glory to God through the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus Christ. What issues we need to stand and fight about? What things are primary in the mission? What are not? And do our lives reflect that priority order of the gospel? Maturing disciples, of course, starts with us too. Sometimes we say as song we're like, yeah, make it mature disciples out there. No, <laughs> us, right? If, if we've been made a disciple, it's our job to get after it, to be mature. That's a priority, right? That's a priority. What things crowd your schedule from day to day that interrupt you being more mature as a believer in Jesus Christ? What? what, look at your calendar. Just look at it. What, What things have to go? What things do I have to drop in order for me to have more attention into maturing me as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Our lives reflect the priority and the primacy of the mission of the gospel, but we are part of the body of Christ together, of course, moving to the same end—the glory of God in the church and in the world—and following Jesus, all of us together. And any church that names Jesus as Lord, and anywhere where there's a man standing in a pulpit that is preaching the Bible and preaching the supremacy of Christ in the or supremacy of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we need to join arms with them. We need to remember that's the primary mission. Following Jesus means keeping the mission primary we have much to pray about this don't we well let's do that let's remember that god will will enable us to do what he's called us to do father we thank you for your goodness your grace your love we thank you for the reality and lord that what you've called us here to in this story of a temple tax of a prediction again of your death lord of the miraculous way in which you provided for this tax Father, we pray that you will help us to understand these applications deep within our hearts. And we pray that as we do the hard work of making your mission primary in our own lives, that we would do that work with the aid of your spirit, with the aid of your word. Would you open our eyes to those things that maybe we're involved in? Maybe we're in battles that we don't need to be in. Maybe we're prioritizing prioritizing things in our lives and our schedules that are that don't need to be prioritized to the level that they are. Show us those. Bring your conviction, bring your strength, and let us remember that what you call us to, you'll equip us for, and we know that you will provide. Help us, Lord, to keep the mission of the gospel primary here at Highlands, but also in our own hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.